Let's open with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you that we can join together today in worship of you and uh, to sit under the teaching of your word. I pray that you would use this time uh, together to uh, grow us to be more Christ-like, help us to um, understand your word rightly, help us to apply to our lives. Uh, Be with Dr. Bowder as he comes and, and teaches this morning. In your son's name we pray. Amen. And, uh, the balance of the time is yours. That's it. That's it? Wow. So, that may be the last time we have the concept of balance implemented today. Um... How many of you remember the old Good Morning song that they used to do on WCCO radio? Yeah, Good Morning, it's grand to be on hand. How long ago was it? Was, that's like 20 years ago that they used to do that, isn't it? With those two guys that were speaking, they were on in the morning, they're both dead now. I can, I can remember that from way back. From way back. Well, at any you newcomers have no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> <clears throat> but, good morning, it's grand to be on hand, anyway, and uh, it's good to see all of you this, or it's, it's, it's good to see as much of you as I can see, let's put it that way. <laughs> um, I'm, what I'm planning to do today is to become the transition. I know that this week is, uh, or this weekend is Thanksgiving weekend. And, and for a while now, you've sort of been gearing up for Thanksgiving. But you know what? Thanksgiving was Thursday. Thursday is in the past. We're past Thanksgiving now. And it's time to get started on Christmas. Um, I, I know some people complain when you start, start thinking and talking about Christmas too early. I'm not one of those people. I wouldn't mind having Christmas 365 days a year. Um, you know, the, okay, let's, let's just talk about Christmas. Some people don't like that word, Christmas. And I'm sure you've bumped into them, you know, Christ's Mass, that's a Catholic holiday. Okay, Let, let's, let's the, the word Mass, which in Latin is Misa, simply means to dismiss. And the, the reason they use that word in Latin-speaking church services is because at the end of the service, guess what happens? You're dismissed. Misa, misa. So any service in which you are celebrating the incarnation of Jesus Christ and you get to go home after the service is done, that's a Christ misa, a Christmas. So let's, let's get over the objections to the word, Okay. Um, so somebody else is going to say, you know, well, what about Santa Claus and all that stuff? Actually, and in fact, I read a thing not too long ago written by, I don't know, some redneck fundamentalist. And that, I don't think those words are synonymous, by the way. Um, I, I think there, there are rednecks who are not fundamentalists. And there are fundamentalists who are not rednecks. Um, some some guy was was writing all about how all you have to do is change a couple letters in Santa and what you have is Satan, and I'm like, oh please, 
So I'll, I'll tell you what, if you come back tonight for the evening service, I'm going to talk about Santa Claus during the evening service. And I'm going to tell you why I believe in Santa Claus. Okay? Now, if that doesn't get you back here, nothing's going to get you back here. <laughs> why I believe in Santa Claus and what that means, what it means to believe in Santa Claus. Okay, in the meanwhile... During our Sunday school hour today, this morning, and during our morning worship service, which comes next, I want to take the time to examine two very important texts about the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And um, it it would be difficult for me, if, if if you want to understand who Jesus Christ is, it would be difficult for me to think of two texts anywhere in the Bible that are more important than the two that I want to talk about now and during the next hour. Um, so, for, for right now, I'm going to ask you to open the Bible to John chapter 1, verse 1. And it's a verse that you could probably, all of you, quote without even looking. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we look at that verse and we go, wow, that's really clear. And you think it is until you meet a Jehovah's Witness someplace, right? And a Jehovah's Witness is going to pull out his handy-duty, his, his handy-dandy um, New World Translation of the Holy Scriptures. Uh, and, and he's going to point you to John 1, 1, and it's going to say something like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was, it will read, the Word was a God with a small g. And a Jehovah's Witness will explain to you as to how that verse doesn't really teach that Jesus is God. What that verse actually teaches is that Jesus is a very exalted, dignified being. He is so exalted that he can be called a God, small g, but he certainly is not the true and living God, capital G. So what I want to do this morning is to to sort of take the verse apart and to examine it But in doing that, when when you talk to your Jehovah's Witness friend or neighbor, or when they come and knock on your door, and by the way, I don't think you should stand there and talk to them at the door, just as a matter of record. I don't think that's ever a good idea. Um, But if if your Jehovah's Witness friend or neighbor points this out to you, they're, they're going to have an argument for you. They're going to base their argument on grammar, Greek grammar, about which they know next to nothing. Uh, and, and they're going to tell you that the reason they translated that the word was a God is because in that clause in the verse, the word, uh, there, there is no definite article in front of the word God. And whenever Greek doesn't have a definite article, it, it, it's indefinite. It means a rather than the. Now, if you didn't understand a word of what I just said, they're counting on that. Okay, so what I want to do is to talk to you a little bit about the grammar of the verse. And to talk about the grammar of the verse, I'm going to have to introduce you to a little bit of Greek speak this morning. Um, so let's, let, the first thing you notice about this verse, there are three parts to it, right? You, you look at the verse. In the beginning was the word, that's part one. 
And the word was with God. That's part two. And the word was God. That's part three. There are three parts to this verse. What I want to do is to take those three parts in order and just to talk about what they mean. And I want to try to help you understand what's going on in the verse, even if that means doing doing a little bit of... Most of you probably even hate English grammar, let alone grammar in a foreign language, but we're actually going to talk about grammar in a foreign language this morning. So let's, let's talk about the first clause. In the beginning was the word. What does that mean? Well, in the first place, let's let's get clear on just who the word is. If you look down at verse 14, it tells us that the word became flesh. Or if you've got a King James, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us or tabernacled among us, pitched his tent among us. So we're talking about someone who was, uh, in the beginning, someone who was with God, but someone who became a human being. It ought to be pretty clear to us who that's talking about, okay? The, the, the word is a name for Jesus Christ. So the first assertion, the first claim that this verse makes is that in the beginning was the word. Now we need to talk about a little bit of grammar. Do you remember from way back when you were studying grammar in about 8th and ninth grade and you were learning about the parts of speech? One of the parts of speech that you learned about was called an article. Now this isn't the kind of article that you read in a magazine or newspaper. An article is a part of speech. And in English we have four articles. A, an, the, and the. You may not have known that the and the were actually distinguishable articles. Well, they are distinguishable in the same way that a and an are distinguishable. You use a in front of a consonant, an in front of a vowel. You use the in front of a consonant, the in front of a vowel. Um, No difference in spelling, just a difference in pronunciation, and sometimes even that gets lost in dialect. The and the are called the definite article because, you know, if, if we talk about the dog, we have a specific dog in mind, right? If, we, if, if somebody threw the ball, they threw a particular ball. The a and an are called an indefinite article. If, if we're talking about, I don't know, a dog, we don't have a particular dog in mind or the man threw a ball. We, we don't know what ball that was. Could have been a baseball, could have been a football, could have been a volleyball. Uh, it, it could even have been a cotillion ball. That, that is to say, it might have been a dance that the guy was throwing. Um, okay, well, what? The ball versus a ball. Definite versus indefinite. Now, here's the thing. When you come to Greek, are, are you following so far? I know I'm giving you kind of boring grammatical details here, but when you come to Greek, Greek has a definite article just like English has a definite article. Um, It doesn't always get, in fact, it gets spelled in lots of different ways and pronounced in lots of different ways uh, because Greek does things with gender and it does things with case that we don't have to worry about in English. But 
there's a definite article there. Greek does not, however, have an indefinite article. There's, you, you can say the ball in Greek. That's no problem. But there's no way to say a ball. There's no word for a or an in Greek. So if you want to be indefinite, you just leave the article off. You don't say a ball, you just say ball, the man threw ball. Okay, here's the problem. When, when, and and this, this is what Jehovah's Witnesses are doing. They're, they're coming to this verse, and, and they're saying in the last third of the verse, which we're not really talking about yet, but in the last third of the verse, when, when you read the verse, the, the actual words in Greek order say this, and God was the word. And there's no definite article with the word God. Now, don't worry about the word order right now, because that, that makes no sense at all to an English-speaking mind. Don't worry about that. What I want you to notice is there's no definite article on the word God. So Jehovah's Witness is going to say, well, that means that the word was just a God indefinite. But they're missing something. It is true that by leaving the article off, one of the things you can do is to turn a word indefinite. So you've got the ball or you've got ball, which may be a ball. But usually when you leave the definite article off a word, what you're doing is drawing attention to its quality rather than its identity. And, and you may have, let's say, you may have a particular ball in mind. The man threw ball. That doesn't necessarily just mean that the man threw a ball. What it has to, what, what, more likely what it means is that the thing that the man threw wasn't a hammer. My grandfather was the city fix-it man for the town of Freeland, Michigan. And if he got upset, sometimes he would just take the tool in his hand and chuck it as far as he could. And then it was the job of one of his kids or grandkids to go and pick up the tool. So sometimes he did throw a hammer, and it wasn't an Olympic hammer throw contest. Um, So the man threw ball. Qualitatively, what he threw had the, the, the properties, the qualities of a ball. It wasn't a hammer. It wasn't a pair of pliers. What, what he threw wasn't an amorphous bag of sand. What he threw was ballish. Okay, so by leaving the article off, you're, you're not denying that it was a particular ball that he threw. What you're drawing attention to is the fact that the thing that he threw really was, it had the qualities, it had the properties of being a ball. Now that's really important when we come to this first clause of John 1.1. If, if I can give you just word for word what's in the Greek text, it would go like this. In beginning was the word. What do you notice about that word beginning? Does it have a definite article? No, it's not in the beginning, not in the Greek text. Now, we put the word the in there when we translate it because there must be some particular beginning 
that, that John has in mind. Trouble is, we don't know which beginning it is. By leaving the definite article off, what he's drawing attention to is the quality of, can I, can I say it this way, the quality of beginningness. So, wherever you want to locate a beginning, whatever has the quality or property of beginningness, the word was already there. Now, what might you think of as the beginning? Okay, maybe, and and that's sort of logical, isn't it? That's sort of reasonable. In the beginning, that's, that's how Genesis 1-1 starts out. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So that could be the beginning that John is talking about. And for sure, it has the quality of beginningness to it. And if that's the beginning that John is thinking of, then at that beginning, the word already was. But would it be possible to think of some other beginning? Adam and Eve. Could be thinking of Adam and Eve. And if so, if that has the quality or property of beginning, then the word already was. Could, could you think of some other beginning? Could, could there have been any creation before creation week? In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. That's talking about the material universe right there. When did God make the angels? That's a really good answer. That's a really good answer because we're actually not told anywhere in the Bible that when God made the angels. Now, we do have that reference in, in the book of Job uh, that when God made things... Um, the sons of God rejoiced in the morning stars sang together. If that's talking about angels, then it may imply that the angels were made before the rest of creation, that angels were already there at Genesis 1.1. If so, when God made the angels, where was the word? Well, word already was. Whatever beginning you want to find, the word was already there. Let's, let's say we want to put our, put our finger down on a beginning a million years before creation. What about the word? Well, the word already was. Okay, we'll go a billion years before creation. The word already was. A trillion years, the word already was. A quadrillion years, a quintillion years, a sextillion years, a septillion years, an anillion years. You're wondering how far I can keep going, aren't you? <laughs> so am I. <laughs> it doesn't matter what beginning you choose. Anything that has the quality or property of beginningness, wherever you want to start things, wherever you want to pick up the narrative, the word already was. Which indicates, doesn't it, that there was never a time when he was not. That is to say, what this first clause is affirming is that the word is the eternal one. Okay? So you can, you can jot that in the margin of your Bible right there. The word is the eternal one. 
But if there was never a time when he did not exist, then he could never have come into being, could he? He he always had to be. And if he always had to be, then what that means is that he is very unlike us. We all did come into being at a particular point in time. In, in other words, we got our life from somewhere. And our life is constantly being propped up by something. You know, you've, you've got to have air or you die. You've got to have water or you die. You've got to have food or you die. We constantly get our life from other things. But for someone who was before all those things, he can't be getting his life from any of them. So, so where does the word get his life? If, if he subsists forever and ever and ever, if there was never a time when he was not, then where does he get his life? Is that a weird question? You see, these are the kinds of things that theologians think about. Well, the answer has to be he doesn't get it from anywhere. He has to have his life in himself. He lives simply because he... In fact, it wouldn't be saying too much to suggest that he is life. Or to put it in other words, that in him was life. That life comes from him. Do you realize that all, all of our lives, we know this, all of our lives are derived lives. We can trace our lives back, you know, through, through our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, our great-great-grandparents. My, my mother is into genealogy. She collects dead relatives. And, and she's got dead relatives going back generations and generations and generations. Okay. And, and I could tell you about some of the people we descended from. Um, not that it's terribly dignified. Our, our first ancestors to emigrate to the New World came across on a ship. Um, she was pregnant uh, when she got on the ship and gave birth somewhere while the ship was in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, and she gave birth to twins. And they knew that, that they were going to be charged for a child. They, they were going to be charged passage for a child that was born in transit. They couldn't afford to be charged for two children. So when the time came, they carried one child off the ship in their arms and they carried the other child off the ship in a slop bucket. Guess which one I'm descended from? (laughs) But if you go back far enough, do you know where we all get our life? Our life is given to us by Jesus Christ, who made all things. His life is in himself, and he shares his life with everything that lives. And not only that, when we believe, he gives us a brand new life. A life that we've never had before, and a life that will never end, because it's like his life. 
that never ends. So he's the eternal one. In the beginning was the word. And, second clause, the word was with God. Now that's interesting. We, we sometimes talk about being with ourselves or by ourselves. But when we use that language, what we really mean is that we're not with anyone. To, to be by ourselves is to be alone. If we're genuinely with someone, then there has to be someone there who isn't us, right? So when we read that the word was with God, here's the word, here's something that is God that is not the word. Now, if the word is Jesus Christ, we could put it this way. There is something that is God that is not Jesus Christ. Or if the word is God the Son, we could put it this way. There is something that is God that is not the Son. Who is God but is not the Son? Excuse me? Can, can we agree the Father is God, but the Father is not the Son? The Holy Spirit is God, but the Holy Spirit is not the Son. In other words, forever and ever and ever, the word was, that's the first clause, the word has existed forever and ever, but he also existed alongside of something or someone else who was God. And we would say that is the Father and that is the Holy Spirit. There is something that is God that is distinguishable from the Word. The way we would say it is that within the Godhead, there are three persons who are co-equal, co-eternal, and of the same substance. That is to say, there's only one God. God is the Father, God is the Son, God is the Holy Spirit, but what John is adding here is that the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. Now there is the closest possible relationship between them. If John Marshall were in the room right now, I would quiz him over his Greek prepositions and see how he did. But I can't pick on him if he's not here, so you can let him know he dodged that bullet. The Greek has a number of different ways of saying with. In, in fact, a lot of these prepositions actually come across into English. The, the word sun, uh, Greek word sun, means with in accompaniment with. The word meta means with but a step behind. The word para means with side by side with. But the word that John uses here is, is the preposition pros, which means face to face with. In, in other words, what John is saying is that the word has always enjoyed the closest possible relationship with God, but there is still something that is God that is not the word. Now, that has implications for us. Have you ever wondered, what was God doing before he made the world? And why did he wait so long to get around to making it? 
Well, there, there are some very complicated answers to that question or to those questions. But part of the answer is this. God really has never needed anything outside of himself in order to be infinitely happy and in order to be all that he is. You say, well, wasn't God lonely in eternity? And the answer is no, because even though there is one God, that one God subsists in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And from all eternity, those three persons have existed in an ongoing relationship. And it's a love relationship. In fact, theologians have sometimes used a a big complicated word. The word is perichoresis. That basically means that, that for all eternity, the Father and the Son and the Spirit have been involved in a, a metaphorically a kind of a dance of mutual self-giving to one another. So God didn't need to create a world. God didn't need to create us in order to, to, to get over his loneliness. He didn't even need to save us. Everything that God has done, he has done simply because it delighted him to do it. And it's all part of his grace. He never owed us anything. He made us and he saved us simply because it delighted him to do that. And in doing that, what he has done by saving us. Now, don't take this, don't take this analogy too far. But by saving us, he has essentially invited us into the dance. In other words, God has given us to begin to fellow, to, to begin to, he has given us the opportunity to begin to fellowship with him, Father, Son, and Spirit, in much the same way that Father, Son, and Spirit fellowship with one another. Now, that doesn't bring us into the Godhead. It doesn't make us gods. But it it puts us in the mutual love relationship of the members of the Trinity. Because in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And now we come to this last clause. And the Word was God. I'm trying to remember. What time am I supposed to quit here? Quarter after ish. Quarter after ish? Okay. We got time for this. Um, maybe I can illustrate this best by narrating a conversation that I had. And I, you know, I've, I've spoken for you a lot of times, and maybe I've told you about this conversation before. Um, if, if I have, you know, you can overlook the fact that I repeat myself. If I haven't, you, you may learn something from the conversation. I told you a while ago uh, that I don't think you should just stand at the door and talk to Jehovah's Witnesses. And I don't just stand at the door and talk to Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, in, in fact, when they would come to the door, I, I would call Debbie and my children. And, and they don't do it anymore. But uh, I would call Debbie and the children to, to the door, and I, w- I would say to Debbie and my children, these, these people are here to tell lies about Jesus. I don't want you to listen to them. 
Um, because I, I think that John in Second John tells us that we're not even supposed to give a cordial greeting to apostates when they come to, to try to spread their false doctrine. But what I will do, if I know they're in the neighborhood, I'll go find them and meet them somewhere down the street and challenge them. So one day I was out mowing my lawn, and I saw a couple of women coming up the street, and, and they're going back and forth across the street, you know, knocking on every door. And so I figured right away, these are either the local Jehovah's Witnesses or these are the local independent fundamental Baptists. Um, and um, let's, let's go find out which one it is. So I shut off the lawnmower, and I walked in down the street, and... Uh, greeted them, and, and uh, I, I said, uh, are you ladies Jehovah's Witnesses? Are, are, yeah, are you ladies Jehovah's Witnesses? They said, yes, we are. Or, no, I, I said, are you, are you affiliated with the uh, Watchtower Bible and Tract Society? And no, nobody knows about the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, and they brightened right up, why, yes, we are. I said, well, I'm one of Jehovah's Witnesses. And they said, oh, you are? I said, yes, it's right there in, in uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus says, you shall be my witnesses. And right away they knew something was wrong. <laughs> and uh, I, I said, let, let me show you something from John's gospel. Um, I, I, I said, uh, does, does one of you happen to have her emphatic diglot with her this morning? Now, you don't know what an emphatic diglot is. But Jehovah's Witnesses, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, publishes a Greek and English interlinear version of the New Testament that's called the emphatic diglot. Uh, and, and I asked, does, does one of you have the emphatic diglot this morning? Well, they got real sheepish and, well, no, we didn't bring it with us today. And I think they thought I was a higher up in the structure who was investigating them to find out how they were doing. Um, I said, well, that, that doesn't matter. I said, you've got your New World Translation of the Holy Scriptures, don't you? Oh, yes, we've got that right here. I said, well, then, let, let's, let's look at some verses. Go to John chapter 1, I said, and, and look at verse uh, number 6. And they looked at verse number 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. I said, okay, they're, they're in verse 6. When it says there was a man sent from God, what God do you suppose we're talking about? Is, is this some kind of a lesser God? Uh, is, is this a subordinate being who could be called a God? Or are we looking at Jehovah here? And they said, oh, this, this is certainly Jehovah. We, we are looking at Jehovah in this verse. I said, that's a good answer. You're exactly right. But I said, what's interesting in this... Is this? I said, oh, and I really wish you had your emphatic diglot here so I could show you, but you look it up when you get home, won't you? Oh, yes, we'll look it up when we get home. I said, what's really interesting here, in verse 6, did you know the word God doesn't have a definite article in front of it? Oh, no. And for the moment, they weren't even sure what a definite article was. I said, there's, there's no the in front of the word God in Greek. By the way, I said, do you, do you know what it means when there isn't a the in front of a noun in Greek? That, that means that attention is being drawn 
to the quality of the thing that is being named. So when, when this verse says that there was a man sent from God, what that means is that the one who sent John had all the qualities or properties of being God. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying, I asked? And they went, yeah. Good, I said, let's go to verse 12. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. I said, to, there, there, there it says that we can become sons of God. I said, what God do you suppose we're talking about there? Is, is this some lesser being, some, somebody who could be called a God, small g, or are we talking about the true and living God here? Oh, they said, this is the true and living God. I said, do you mean this is Jehovah? Oh, yes, they said, this, this is Jehovah. The God we're looking at here is Jehovah. I said, that's, that's good. You're exactly right. But do you know what? That word God in verse 12 doesn't have a definite article in front of it. I said, do you remember what that means? They said, well, it, you said it means that attention is being drawn to the quality of the thing. So I said, if, if we can be, become sons of God, then that means that the one who is our father has all the qualities or properties of being God. Is that right? Is, is, does our father have all the qualities or properties of being God? Oh, yes, they said. He certainly does. Good, I said. Then, then we're on exactly the same page. What about verse 18? So they looked at verse 18. No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father. He hath declared him. I said, what, what God are we talking about in verse 18? Is this Jehovah or is this some lesser being, a God, small g? Oh, no, they said, this, this is definitely Jehovah in verse 18. I said, this is the true and living God? Oh, yes, this is the true and living God. I said, you know what? In verse 18, the word God doesn't have a definite article in front of it. Do you remember what that means? They said, well, it means quality rather than identity. I said, that's, that's right. Um, no man has seen any being who has the qualities or properties of God at any time. So does, does that sound right to you? The, the, the one whom we have never seen has all the qualities or properties of being God? Oh, yes, they said. That's, that's, that's a good description of the true and living God. That's a good description of Jehovah. Great, I said. Let's go back to verse 1. I said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was... Oh, I said, the, the New World Translation says that, this was, that, that the Word was a God. Now, why would it do that? They said, well, it's, it's because there isn't a definite article in front of the word God. I said, wait a minute. Do you remember what that means? It means that the noun that doesn't have the article is being stressed in terms of its qualities or its properties. So the word had all the qualities or properties of God. By the way, I said, who was the word? Well, they said the word was Jesus. So if Jesus is the word, I said, and the word was God, he had all the qualities or properties of God, then who does that make Jesus? Well, you, you've got to remember, there's no definite article in front of the word God right here. I, I said, we've, we've already seen what that means. Is, is there a definite article in verse 6? Well, no. 
Definite article in verse 12? No. Definite article in verse 18? No. Well then, if, if it's the true and living God, if it's Jehovah in verses 6 and 12 and 18, then it must be Jehovah in verse 1. Now, if Jesus is the word and the word is Jehovah, then who does that make Jesus? I still, you know, they, they always go out in pairs, and one of them is always a more senior member, and the other is, is a kind of a trainee member. And, and this, this trainee member was on the verge of saying, you know, I, I'm saying if, if Jesus is the word, and the word is Jehovah, then who does that make Jesus? And she's on the verge of saying Jehovah, but before she can get it out, the other one jumps in and says, you believe in the Trinity. You know, the thing they always say about the Trinity is you never find the word Trinity in the Bible. So what I said was, you don't even find the word Trinity in the Bible. Let's not talk about the Trinity. Let's just talk about John 1.1. 1, 1. If Jesus is the word and the word is Jehovah, then who does that make Jesus? Well, she said, we've had enough of this conversation. We have other things we need to do. I said, what do you need to do? She said, there, there are homes that we need to visit along this street. I said, that's great. Let's go visit them. She said, what, what do you mean? I said, well, you're going to tell them who you think Jesus was, and I'll show them who John says Jesus was. Let's go do this. It'll be fun. She said, you can't go with us. I said, why not? She thought a minute, and she said, you're not dressed for it. I said, well, I, I think God's willing to, you know, I, I was out mowing the lawn when you came down my street, and I've got neighbors on this street who've never actually heard who Jesus is. This would be a good time to tell them, don't you think? Let's go. She said, well, if, if, if that's your attitude, we're going to have to leave this street. I said, let me walk you to your car. Okay. But do you, do you get the idea about that third clause? <coughs> The word had all the qualities or properties of being God. Now, John couldn't say the word was the God, which would be, that, that would constitute an equal sign. Word equals God. Would that be true? Think about it. Would it be, would it be accurate to say that the word equals God? Let me, let me ask it a different way. Is there anything that is God that isn't the word? Well, yeah, the Father is God, but he's not the Word. The, the, the Spirit is God, but he's not the Word. John couldn't put that article there. John is walking a tightrope. He couldn't put that article there, because that would be like an equal sign. So instead, he uses a way of speaking that says the Word had all the qualities or properties of being God. And it's that word who became flesh in verse 14. Okay, I'm past time to quit here. What I will say is this. More than anything at this time of year, when we discover these truths about the Lord Jesus Christ, let me summarize them for you. In the beginning was the word. He is the eternal one. And the word was with God. I'm, I'm not giving you the peace sign here. And the word was with God. 
he was, let me put it this way, he was the other one. Not the Father, not the Spirit, he was the other one. And the Word was God. He is the divine one. The eternal one, the other one, the divine one. If we believe those things, then how should we respond to him? Well, let me give you one response that comes right directly out of our hymnal. Oh, come, let us adore him. Let's bow in prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the eternal one, and you are the other one, and you are the divine one, and you have become one of us, and you have become our Savior through your mediation on the cross. And we worship you and adore you, and we pray that you, you would help us to love you more as we ought and to serve you more as you deserve. And we pray it in your name.